Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Chapman, welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. Matt Slater with us as usual. Coming up today with the COP26 Climate Summit taking place in Glasgow, we're joined by Dale Vince, chairman of the football club, recognised by FIFA as being the greenest in the world. We'll discuss how sport in general can take action against climate change. And we're also joined by Rob Sullivan, CEO of the Football Foundation, to tell us about the £205 million worth of government funding the charity received last week to invest in grassroots football in England, and also how their work is linked to the 2030 UK and Ireland World Cup bid. So the COP26 Climate Summit is taking place in Glasgow this week. World leaders and key players in business are discussing the global response to climate change and sport is very much on the agenda with owners, chief execs of sports clubs, federations and related businesses all in attendance, as is our first guest, Dale Vince. Dale is chairman of English League two-side Forest Green Rovers, recognised by FIFA as the world's greenest football club and also founder of Ecotricity, billed as Britain's greenest energy supplier. Dale, first of all, is it a good thing or a bad thing that whenever uh, we look at sustainability in sport, you're the first person we come to? <laughs> yes, I know, really. But I get the question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think it'd be nice if there was some competition, wouldn't it? That's what I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have been, you are in Glasgow this week. You are at the climate summit. So do you feel less like you're banging your head against a brick wall, which I'm guessing is how you might have felt in previous years? Yeah, I feel that every year, you know, because the environment comes up the agenda more and more uh, as the years go by. And uh, I mean, this is this is peak concern about the environment, really. If you look around, look at who's talking, at least not so much in who's doing. Um, you know, it's just never been more important to more people, I think. From your experience at the summit, then what? Where is sport within this summit? Is it, is it at the heart of discussions? Is it a little bit on the outside? Literally speaking, it's in the blue zone, so it's kind of in the heart of things. The <laughs> uh, the UN, you know, the UN Sport for Climate Action uh, program is in the blue zone. I'm off there later today to take part in some kind of panel discussion. I think. Um, I think, therefore, sport probably is at the heart of the discussion because the UN have picked it up and, uh, and made a thing of it, you know, this, this program, Sport for Climate Action, and having some success with it. I mean, there are like 250 signatories now around the world, um, and, uh, and it's just moving into second gear in terms of moving past the signatory phase and into, uh, well, let's have some tangible results, please, guys, you know, 
which is uh, you know pretty well aligned with the rest of the world. I would say we've got the targets, but we haven't yet got the way to deliver them. Take us back a little bit. We we have listeners. This isn't a boast. This is this is just the way it is. We have listeners globally <laughs> uh, on this on this podcast. So. Let's say for our American listeners, for example, tell us about Forest Green Rovers and why you chose to invest in a football club and do what you've done. Forest Green Rovers was, um, I like to call it um, a happy accident, a serendipity for me, because it was just a rescue mission. Uh, I never I never intended to do anything other than save my local football club, which was 120 years old, 10 years ago, uh, and was in trouble. And I didn't give it any thought. I just thought, how hard can it be? And didn't have a grand vision for what it's become. I uh, just, just dived in. And on day one, bumped into the first of a whole string of issues that I couldn't live mm. with and had to change. And that was actually that the club was serving red meat to the players. And, and so that was where the journey began, really. All of the changes that uh, had to be made came off the back of that one. And it was probably in the next few weeks that I realized that I would in making all of these changes in the process be in effect building a new kind of football club a green football club and taking the message to a new kind of audience the world of football maybe the world, wider world of sport was possible uh, this is me uh, trying to rationalize the event after it happened thinking i can make something positive from this situation and so we just dived and got on and done that and we found that football has been the most incredible platform for communicating to football fans about the environment the climate crisis and getting them engaged in it you know our fans have gone veg and vegan they they're buying electric cars and solar panels and they embrace the whole thing and and you know we've got uh, fan clubs are all around the world in 20 different countries, about 100 of them. Uh, people that are either football fans or environment fans or both that have bonded with our club for the things that we stand for, things that we do. It's really interesting that you you mentioned the the veganism and the, the ban on red meat. That's kind of where it started. And it is, it is, to me, fascinating how that has kind of spread in elite sport. I'm hearing more and more about sports people who have gone down that road. But that really was, as you mentioned, the, the beginning of the journey, I suppose, for Forest Green Rovers becoming green. And you, you talked about the solar panels. I mean, some of the other things that some of the other stories that have been picked up in the main the media here are things like your solar powered lawnmowers. Is that right? And just how you use water and, of course, your your vision for the stadium. Can you explain some more of those? So how you can go from, you know, changing the diet of players to really becoming a sustainable football club? Yeah, Absolutely. So we focus on the three big things that are the focus of my life and my work, really, energy, transport, and food. Uh, 80% of everybody's personal carbon footprint and all businesses and sports clubs, actually, are typically found in three things, how we power ourselves, how we travel, and what we eat. So we focused on those first. We've got solar panels on one of our stadium rooftops. We make 20% of our own electricity that way. And with the rest we bring in from the grid, there's a windmill on a hill just behind us. It's the first one I built, actually, in 1996. It was quite convenient, but we bring that in and anybody can bring it in from the grid. You don't need one near you. Uh, so we're 100% powered by green electricity. Now on transport, we installed electric charging points for our fans. That was the first thing we did 10 years ago. Our fans didn't have electric cars, but we figured until we put in somewhere to charge them, you know, it was going to be harder for them to get an electric car, come to a game and get home again. Put our players in electric cars as well. Right now we've got a kit van and some pool cars and hopefully soon we'll have an electric bus that's coming. We can talk about that in a minute if you like. And then on the food front, of course, we went vegan. And that's like a, a really big, but I want to say easy change. I mean, it's a cultural challenge, but actually the, you know, the physical nature of the change is really easy to do. So that was energy, transport and food. 
they're the big things. And then the other stuff is around the edges. So we've got an organic football pitch, means we don't use chemical fertilizers or pesticides on it, which is a really big deal in the world. Agriculture is kind of killing the world, harming wildlife, poisoning water and land with these chemicals. Underneath the pitch, we capture the water that goes through through the grass and we use it on the pitch again. It's like a recycling system. So whether that's rainwater or irrigation water from us, uh, we capture it and use it again, which is, water is a big climate issue, obviously. We banned single-use plastics. Recently, we've been zero to landfill for a while. Uh, all of our food waste goes to compost. And we even created some wildlife areas around the edge of the stadium, areas that we just let go wild. And we've got uh, wild orchids and slowworms inhabiting that. Yeah, I think that's most of what we've done. We took out sugary fizzy drinks recently because, you know, health is an important issue and, and the, the kinds of food that you, you tend to find at sporting events are quite counterintuitive when you think it's a sporting event and it's all about, uh, you know, athletic performance. You see Coca-Cola sponsoring major football competitions, for example, or maybe McDonald's or something like that. Where's the association between that product and performance on the pitch in this sport that we're watching? Is your boss the only thing that doesn't fit in with your policies at the moment. Uh, I thought you said boss there for a minute, which <laughs> gave me pause of thought. <laughs> I haven't got a boss. Wait, what's he saying? <laughs> I hope he's happy if I have. <laughs> anyway, uh, the bus, yes. I don't think it's the only thing, but it's probably the biggest thing we'd like to have done already. So, you know, we've got our carbon footprint down to 30 tonnes. And a few years ago, we went through a programme with the United Nations uh, called Climate Neutral Now, um, this program whereby you you measure your carbon emissions, reduce them, and then offset the residual. And we'd been doing the first two for years, so we offset the residual, became first sports club to go climate neutral in the world. We did that because we thought it would help kind of spread the message. Our footprint's 30 tons is really not very big. But I guess if I had to look around the club, now that you asked the question and say, what's the standout uh, biggest thing we really still need to change? It probably is away travel, actually. It probably is the bus. And you know, like most clubs, we just rent one in a diesel bus and and away we go. I say most clubs, obviously, not not in the Premier League because they jump on planes well, for ten minutes. Yeah. Well, that, well, that, well, that was my question. You know, I was gonna well, I was gonna follow up because because to me, I mean, a lot of the things you mentioned, one seem they all seem great ideas, but a lot of them seem to be within reach of most families. You know, single use plastics, change your diet. You know, a good gardener's presumably capturing that rainwater and all that sort of stuff, food waste. But it's travel, I think. It's, it's, that's that's the really tough one, isn't it? And I suppose you could use you could get the train, but that's tricky. But increasingly, when I talk to you know the, the big teams, they are so focused on performance. It's about kind of you know just traveling there quickly, getting their players back, getting them in bed, getting them wrapped up, getting straight into re, into into sort of recovery. These are the sort of things that most professional football clubs focus on Dale you know they're not thinking about offsetting their carbon footprint that's clear I think at the elite level uh, although uh, you know some clubs in the Premier League have begun to talk about zero carbon games yes. and they Spurs and Chelsea had such a game um, and that was interesting worth talking about obviously it was Man United recently that flew for 10 minutes to get to Leicester um, I, I hear what you're saying but you know we, we don't have a performance issue and I think you can travel on a bus and not have a performance issue you know you just it takes more time and more preparation um, but it, but it makes less carbon and you know a lot of our world is uh, is like this you know we, we we sacrifice the environment for the sake of speed and convenience and um you know, we have to stop that. Let's talk about that carbon neutral game, which got a lot of press, a lot of publicity this season. It was, as you say, uh, Tottenham and Chelsea. What is your understanding of what they did that day? Does it pass your test? Um, no, 
but you know, I was really glad they did it because it, it kind of put a marker down, you know, to have the first uh, zero carbon game in the Premier League. Uh, I think it was a thing, you know, and I'm hoping that it causes other clubs to say, well, you know, we're gonna we're gonna tread tread down that road as well, actually, because they know they need to. They know the fans want to see it and and that kind of stuff. The, the game itself, it was all right. I think they travelled on biodiesel buses instead of diesel buses, which is a step, but I mean, it's not an important one. They could have used electric buses. They there are some nearby. And uh, I'd, I'd, have, uh, I'd have told them if, if I'd have known they were planning the game. Uh, we're using an electric bus from uh, London in a few games' time to travel to one of our away games. And we'll probably be the first team in the world to do that on an electric bus. They could have done that, but they didn't know about it, I'm sure. Just logistically, I've got an electric car, but it's for, it's for, it's for, the, it's for the quick runarounds here. How many times would you need to charge that bus to get from, I don't know, from Gloucestershire to... I won't make it silly, but, let, but let's say to, to London. None. Could you get to Newcastle on one charge? Mm-hmm. No, no, then you'd, you'd need a charge, one charge. Uh, so the bus has got a range of 180 miles. And I, I'm, I came to cop in an electric car with a 180 mile range, and that was a 350, 350 mile journey, I think. And yeah, we had to stop a couple of times. Um, but it was all right. Stopping is not the end of the world. You know, th- these electric buses, they aren't going to work for every game for us right now. So we'll choose a fairly local one under 100 miles. But the important thing is to get started and do something, you know. I thought what was quite interesting that you said very early on in one of your answers is how much your fans embraced it. Because the, no- the, the, the normal assumption in football is try anything different, try something new. Oh, fans are not going to accept it. Fans won't accept it. And in my experience, it's the complete opposite with them yeah I think you're right I mean that's what I found in football as well a lot of that kind of attitude oh we can't do that or or this is how it's always been you know this is football this is how we do things and uh, and that you know which is a similar kind of attitude kind of um, I don't know what you'd call it really really resistant to change into new things but we don't care about any of that we, we brush all of that aside and just carry on anyway and um, you know we took our fans with us by by talking to them um, explaining not just what we were doing, but why. And uh, and as, as you said earlier, um, all of the things we've done are accessible to people to do at home. You know, you can get green electricity, you can get an electric car. Now, obviously, you have to be able to afford one. I, I get that. Um, but, the, you know, the changing your your diet to, to plant-based, super easy for everybody. Solar panels, they, they pay for themselves or you can afford to buy them in the first place. You know, every, a lot of what we do or everything that we do is actually feasible at home. And what I thought uh, was going to be said at that time was that everything we've done is really feasible at any other football club, especially at the Premier League level. And I think that's a point worth making because there is no cost bar at the Premier League level. All of the things we've done are massively affordable at the Premier League level. And, you know, they, they ought to get on and do it, in my opinion, uh, and have much more genuinely zero carbon games. And I don't want to slag off the game they had because I thought it was important they did. I was glad they did it. But, you know, uh, they should go further now. What's quite interesting is one of the messages that keeps coming out from COP26 to us, the general public, is the small things that you you can do as an individual, which we've already talked about. Am I right in thinking that at at least at a one-away game this season, and I can't for the life of me remember which one it was, Dale, so apologies, that clubs are trying to, when you are the away team, embrace your principles, so put put on vegan food when you are the visitors. Now, of course, that's great for when you're there, but presumably, <laughs> you then want them to keep that going when you are the visitors. Yeah. So um, 
we get a bit of both actually. So, I mean, you're right. I think it was Carlisle this year that put on uh, vegan auctions yeah. for us. And I was yeah. with the away fans and I think there were two different kinds of vegan pie in the concourse. And I was like, you know, madly impressed by that. And fair play to them. Um, yeah. and, and I think it was a couple of seasons ago, Carlisle came to play us and the chairman refused to eat anything in our, in our uh, boardroom because there was no meat. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he went on social media and said he was offended because he came from a meat family, you know, uh, in the meat trade. Um, and, uh, and, uh, he got a real big kickback on social media from his own fans. And and when we played the return leg in that season, the whole stadium was vegan for the day because the fans have been saying, well, why can't we have this? You know, and kind of, uh, so it, it was interesting. So there was a, there's a bunch of that fans approaching other clubs and saying, look, you know, why can't we have the kind of food that uh, we see is there at Forest Green? You know, why can't we put on vegan options, that kind of stuff. And at the same time, clubs doing it for us when we're there, which is very nice of them. Where does consumerism come in all of this? Because sport is obviously very consumer led. And I'm thinking about, I'm not thinking about the game day experience. I'm thinking about shirts. I'm thinking about boots. I'm thinking about, you know, you see inside the dressing room players, non Premier League players, this is Dale, obviously have four or five pairs of boots under their under their seat ahead of a ahead of a game. You know, kits are changed every season, not just a home kit, three kits normally, home away, third kit changed every season. Yeah. Can the sports consumerism and desire for money off the fans balance with sustainability? I think it has to. We have to make sure that it does. And whether that's by public opinion, by fan opinion, fan-led opinion, or whether it's by regulation, um, I don't really care. I mean, when you start the question, where does consumerism sit on in all of this? I was going to say, well, look, I mean, it's the root of everything. Consumerism is what's driving all of the problems in the world, including the climate crisis. And it's the rate at which we're buying mm-hmm. stuff and what that stuff is and the impact that stuff has. Um, and, you know, football is a, is a reflection of that. You know, football clubs are run like businesses, and so they want to sell as much stuff as possible. But that's a mindset we have to change in the wider world as well. So at our club, uh, we don't change three shirts a year. We change one out of three every year so that there's always something new, but not everything new. Um, and we make them... Uh, sustainable material of course we've used bamboo we use coffee grounds i'm not sure what we'll use next year but we've got we've got a new idea where the stuff comes from what it's made of that's important not throwing stuff away is super important and you know if, if you yeah. change it every year then you're just in ch- encouraging waste which is a, which is a bit of a problem just one quick one Dale, before you go because i know you're very busy we, we haven't really acknowledged how well the team is going you're flying, right? I mean, you're enjoying it, presumably. Yeah, it's it's a great thing because you know um, I'm having a lot of conversations about the the place for sustainability in sport, as you might imagine. Uh, and I mean, just a few weeks ago, I was with the EFL. They did something brilliant. They launched a thing called Green Club Scheme. It's aimed at all 72 clubs of the EFL to get them on board. And I said to somebody in the uh, in the conference I was at, it's, it's pretty convenient actually that I'm here today talking to these clubs about. Uh, sustainability in football and we're sat top of the league because if we were sat in a relegation battle you know what's going to happen the clubs yeah. are going to be going yeah that's all very well but when you took your eye off the football look what happened <laughs> so uh yeah you know it helps it helps and i've always thought it'd be the case like as a club we we walk with two legs you know one of our legs is sustainability the other is football and they both have to be good we have to be good at both for credibility and one supports the other when you bring in a new manager is one of the, although I suppose your reputation your reputation precedes you. But but do you question new members of staff on on their their views on the environment and sustainability so that they buy in with with your ethos? No, no, we don't actually. And it's like um, it's like the mug, the famous mug. You don't have to be mad to work here. Our view is you don't have to be green to work here. You know, and if you are, it helps. But um, but but you will be before you leave, probably to a degree. 
that's that's my understanding or experience of it. Um, but we we tend to attract people that are at least open-minded to what we're doing. You would have come for a job with Forest Green Rovers if you didn't like what we did, you know, if you had a problem with what we did. I think that's uh, so they're kind of pre-screened in that way, I think, by the uh, the advanced knowledge of what it is we get up to. And our new guy, he's been amazing. You know, he, he jumped at the chance of an electric car. I never expected that because obviously managers drive, you know, the length and breadth of the country, don't they? But he jumped at the chance and then he went and persuaded his parents to get one. And he's, he's just fully on board, which, which I have to say is, you know, is so unexpected and, and, a, and a great bonus. Thank you very much for coming on, Dale. Re- a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. See you later. Good luck with everything. No problem. Take care. Cheers, Dale. See you later. Ta-da. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Let's speak to Rob Sullivan next, CEO of the Football Foundation, the Premier League, FA and Government's charity, who've just received £205 million in funding from the government to help in their goal of delivering grassroots football facilities in the UK. Rob also spent 10 years at the Football Association and led the development of the UK and Ireland FIFA 2030 World Cup bid, which received £11 million in the recent budget. We'll come on to the World Cup 
bid a little bit later. Rob, but first of all, you must be delighted with the £205 million. It's fantastic news for grassroots football in, in the UK and um, at the Football Foundation, we're really, really excited about the challenge ahead of us. We've got three, three or four years now of certain funding from the FA, from the Premier League and from government. And with that, we need to really transform and improve the landscape of community football facilities. What's top of the list? Two things, Mark, uh, if you can have two things at the top. Um, <laughs> we need to uh, rapidly increase the number of artificial grass pitches because we know they make a real difference to the uh, inclusive nature of their use and the amount of usage that we can uh, we can get out of those facilities. And secondly, we really need to improve the grass pitch stock in this country. We aren't going to be able to just do this with artificial pitches alone. We've got 20,000 grass pitches there, which we really need to raise the quality of. And that's why, in fact, today we've launched a new campaign around getting clubs to, uh, what we say, power up their pitches, to use our digital assessment tool to send us images of their grass pitches. We can then assess the quality of their grass pitches from those, from those pitches they send us. And we can then send them back guidance funding specific tools and, and tips and hints about how to really make a difference and improve grass pitches, which which is so vital for all of us. Is that as simple as providing a, a, a groundsman for the, to, to the council, providing, you know, funding someone to tend to pictures to make sure that when we all turn up on a Saturday, Sunday morning to either play or as a parent, the grass isn't at shin high for a, for an eight year old, and it's not covered in 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 dog mess. Yeah, well, it's like everything; it's a mix. It's it's a workforce who are skilled and experienced and understand what to do. It's having the right um, machinery and kit and equipment to be able to do the things that they need to do, and and having the funding in place, which is where we can often help to make sure that they can bring all that together at the right time. So. That, that's why our digital assessment tool, Pitch Power, is really important because it will allow us to benchmark the quality of all these pitches and then we can provide specific guidance to each club so they know what to do. And with that guidance will come access to funding and training and maybe introduction to workforce um, from other areas that can help them. Well, Because we were just saying, we were just talking to Dale Vince, Forest Green Rovers uh, owner, before, and we were we were telling him, I don't know if you believe this, that we do actually have listeners all around the world. It's true. So, 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 so I'm going to do the same sort of approach with you. Can you just explain a little bit? About the football foundation, I, I mean, I, I know who you are. I've I've used your facilities. I think you're one of sort of football's great secrets. But but you know, give give us give us the elevator pitch. Okay, so we are a charity. We were established by the government, the FA, and the Premier League. And every year we take funding from those three bodies. And you know, we should be very clear: this is contributions from from the top of football coming down into the grassroots of the game. We take that funding, we find really good local community projects that we can invest in. We ask for a little bit of match funding from them, and then we improve the stock of football and wider multi-sport facilities. So that's new artificial pitches, it's improved grass pitches, it's new clubhouses, it's fencing, it's floodlights. It's any, any kind of sporting community infrastructure that will mean more people get to play. And the secondary benefits of more participation is what we all want to achieve, particularly in the current climate of a post-pandemic. Now, look, every country does this a little bit differently, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I mean, you know, yeah. you know, in, in France, I, I'm, off, I'm often sort of think about this when I sort of drive around on, on holiday, you sort of go into any village and you'll see an amazing football pitch. You'll often yeah. see no one using it, but there'll be an amazing football facility there. And you sort of think, well, how are they, how are they doing it? And the Scandinavians doing it a different way. Now, a lot of it they do through taxation. Correct. Straightforward taxation. So you're right. Every model is different. I remember once being... Uh, 
with colleagues of the Deutsche Fußballerbund and I asked them how much they spent on grassroots pitches and they laughed and said, why on earth would we do that when the, you know, the federal states do that? So we're just in a different space where uh, over time, those local facilities that may have been local authority led, the financial situation, as we know, in this country has changed. And therefore, where we are blessed is that we have a very wealthy elite end of football in this country and and the FA and the Premier League have stepped up in the last 21 years supporting the Football Foundation and the government have too and with this latest announcement you know they've really doubled down on their investment the government and that's why we have this fantastic opportunity to if you like take the next three to ten years and fix it once and for all and get a level of facility that we're proud of that the game needs and that we can make sustainable so we're not having to ask for capital investment on and on and on into the future. Are you only looking at facilities here, Rob? And by that, I mean any parent will tell you for their kid to do sport, not not just football, netball, swimming, whatever it may be, cricket, cost money, right? So I think you, you have to be at a certain level of income to be able to afford, actually, nowadays, for your kid to do sport. Match subs, training, kit, whatever. Can you help? low-income families? We are primarily a capital-giving body, so we are providing the capital to build the facilities. But I think there's a couple of points that come with that. Firstly, we are increasingly specifically trying to target that investment into tackling inequalities, so identifying the communities where it's needed the most and working on community usage plans then with those applicants that will ensure that they are bringing in the right community groups to get as broad as usage as possible. And part of that market is then setting pricing plans that are relevant and appropriate and affordable for those communities. Where do you stand with the Premier League here? Because the funding that you have got over three years is basically two Jack Grealishes. So whenever we talk, whenever, well, whenever we talk grassroots football, on the one hand, I'll get comments from Premier League going, we do an awful lot for grassroots. We contribute, we try and help, we put money in. I then get people on the other side within grassroots going, they've just spent 100 million pounds. This isn't a dig at City, by the way. Uh, just spent 100 million pounds on Jack Grealish and we can't even, you know, get hot water in our changing rooms. Yeah. Are you somewhere in the middle of those two points of view? Do you lean one way or the other? I understand both sides of that argument, but I, you know, from my perspective, the Premier League have been brilliant funders of the Football Foundation and have been the most consistent and supportive of the Football Foundation over its 21-year history. And in fact, you know, conversations we're having at the moment, are, well, I'm quite optimistic that that's even, you know, going to increase. So I would be more on the supportive end of everything that they have done to allow the Football Foundation to do it, to do its core work. But I, but I do understand that people will always point to disparity and that has to be part of the conversation. I've got another thorny one for you, Rob. <laughs> Another one involving a bit of hindsight. Look, I, I did, I've been meaning to get you on for a while. We've been meaning to get you on for a while. And I did think about sort of postponing it a bit until we properly got into postponement season. Anyone that runs grassroots football, anyone that watches grassroots football yeah. knows you get to November, December, January, and suddenly the games start going. Well, last weekend, it was pretty wet up here. And some of my club's games got, got cancelled just from, you know, puddles on the pitch. It wasn't that bad. Touchwood, this season's been fine. Now, can you imagine what the Football Foundation would be able to do right now, your ambitions right now, if someone, for example, had bought Wembley for a large sum of money that would have presumably flowed through, through you, through your foundation? 
Yeah, and that of course that of course. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll you know you you know, you know the story. <laughs> I know. Sorry, I was pretty close to the original proposal and the uh, and the recommendation, as you remember, Matt. Look, I think the Wembley sale process is quite interesting actually because the one thing it crystallised, I think, was a determination within the FA and the game that they really needed to crack this problem of grassroots facilities. So, because the Wembley sale conversation became a um, a choice between selling the stadium and having releasing that capital that could be put into grassroots facilities. And then when the sale didn't go through, people around the board table at the FA are looking at, well, we've still got, we've still now enumerated the problem of grassroots facilities and we know what we know what the price tag is going to be. And that's what started the conversations with the government about getting serious about their increased investment. So I think what I would say, Matt, is the hindsight perspective is actually the Wembley conversation did become a catalyst for increased government investment, which is where the Football Foundation stands today to, you know, to make sure we deliver against that investment. So it may be, you know, unleashed the um, activism to make it happen. Let's look forward then. We, we talked about in the intro your, your involvement in the development of the UK and Ireland World Cup bid. Um, so 11 million in the budget for a feasibility study. Is that a lot of money? I mean, what, what the heck goes into a feasibility study to cost £11 million? Having been out of the process slightly for the last 18 months, I'm not sure where the £11 million goes against and whether that's to cover the full bidding costs right right through to the process or not. So if I can speak more generally, what needs to happen in the next two or three years is the, the consortia of FAs and government need to form an effective partnership and they need to understand what a bid might look like, both on the technical side and a lot of that work might be things like assessing stadia and transport plans and technology applications that could sit around the bid. And then obviously there's the campaign costs as well. These things are all relative about the cost and the value because, you know, I could give you a huge number of what the economic impact of a UK and Ireland World Cup bid back to the, you know, to the benefits of the British economy. And effectively, that's the assessment you're making when you think about a bid cost and whether it's worth it or not. Do you think we stand a chance? Yeah, I do. And do I, you? Yeah, no, do you really? I mean, I, I'm yeah. not. I'm, I'm genuinely not having a go, Rob. But after ev- after everything this summer, do yeah. you, th- and I, and you I, think we stand a chance? I think, Mark, and I, you know, not to make this a you know disparaging about the kind of commentary around it. I I think a couple of things for me. First principles of why you might do this: the the, diff, the bid process is very different to any bid process that's happened that England has been involved in previously. The bidding entity is very different. UK and Ireland is a very different offer and entity to a previous English bid and, and has a different perspective and carries a different history to it and put in a positive way. And I think the fundamentals of when I was looking at this two years are still the same, which is if a UK and Ireland has UEFA support, it goes into a global election effectively where you need 105 votes and it has 55 already because it has a block UEFA support. So the electoral mass of that are pretty strong to start with. Now, you then have to overlay to the top of that all of the volatility and flux of international football politics. And that, you know, and that's happening all around us all the time with FIFA and UEFA and match calendars and ESLs. And I think anyone who can sit here now and say, well, that's a settled situation and therefore we know who UEFA are going to choose is kidding themselves. There's so much that's still to play for and that could go up and down in that world. I think the UK and Irish bit are doing exactly the right thing, which is they're doing a lot of work behind the scenes to, to build what their bid could look like. And they're waiting for all that politics to play out. And to your specific point about what happened in the finals of the Euros, you know, that was, you know, it's terrible. But it is one isolated incident, which what I think 
whether you think that is right or wrong will be vastly diminished over time in its impact and importance on a bidding process. I do agree with you. I, I sort of, I, I know exactly where Mark's coming from as well. I, I hear the same stuff. I, I think it's interesting that the, the plan appears to me at the moment to stay in the game, stay in the game at the moment because things change. If China wants a World Cup, China gets a World Cup, but they're clearly not ready. So that does, I think, make it possible, right? And po- possible is enough probably at the moment. But I do just want to just press you for an opinion. If we cannot get 100% UEFA backing, that block vote of 55, there is no point doing this, is there? Personally, my perspective is it won't be a subjective choice, which is I think UEFA will only put forward one candidate. Therefore, it's not. it won't be a case of, well, should we do it anyway? It would be a case of we're not the UEFA candidate. There you go. Well, exactly. So that's so it's sort of is us versus Spain, Portugal, and Italy if they fancy it. And yeah, so there's a, there's a lot to go for. There is a lot to go at, and a lot still to happen and change. So anyone who's calling it now, I think, is very premature. Sorry, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's, that's that's absolutely fine. If we got you on in two years' time, hopefully it'll be before that. But in two years' time, into this three-year, I'm hoping for the Phil Hay show. <laughs> I can, bizarrely, I can make that happen. <laughs> Two years' time, where will I see the biggest improvements in grassroots facilities? Great question. I think you will see a much higher number of quality grass pitches that don't fall foul of Matt's bad weather. So I'm hoping we'll be close to 5,000 what we call good quality grass pitches by then. And I'm hoping you'll see a significant increase in the number of available to use high quality artificial grass pitches which have got great community usage multi-sport activity going on around them really inclusive environments which are accessible to all thank you very much for coming on i'll go and give phil a ring <laughs> we're all we're, we're always being used by people to get on other shows it's fine <laughs> you join a long list uh, wish you well with all the work thanks thank for you. coming on thanks, guys. Well. thank you cheers That's it. Thanks very much to all our guests. Don't forget, if you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, then head to theathletic.com slash footballpod. You'll get a 33% discount off the price of an annual subscription. And I'm back on Monday for The Athletic Football Podcast. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.